You're listening to Edu Revolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, I'm excited to have Sunny Magania uh, with us today. And, and Sunny, thanks for joining me. And uh, I wanted to really start by talking about the book, uh, Disruptive Classroom Technologies, a Framework for Innovation in Education. And so, Sonny, tell us a little bit about this work, any inspiration for it that you had, and talk to us specifically about the framework. Maybe take us through T1, T2, T3. Let's give the audience uh, a deeper dive in what this is all about. I'd love to. Thanks very much for having me on, Mike. Yeah, the, you know, it all really started uh, when I was about 13 or 14 and I really, really wanted to learn how to play the guitar. But there were no guitar teachers around that my school didn't offer guitar lessons. Uh, it just was something you kind of had to do on your own. So interestingly enough, when I was in school, the type of learning that I engaged was mostly memorization. And I got pretty good at it. You know, I got pretty good at memorizing stuff. But that didn't really help me learn something complicated like, you know, playing playing an instrument or learning how to play music. So I taught myself how to play guitar and then something strange happened <laughs> you know, over the course of you know, several years of teaching myself how to play guitar. I kind of taught myself how to learn. And that's a really interesting concept because I differentiated schooling as something that was pretty rote and kind of tedious and boring, but learning music was joyful and exhilarating and something that I had control over. And I was able to, to not just express myself, but learn something about myself. So around that time, I was now you know, 14, 15 years old. I thought I was getting pretty good at playing the guitar and uh, playing with playing little bands and, you know, straight up rock and roll, you know, just three chords, let it all hang out there and playing Beatles and uh, country rock and Eagles and all kinds of music. And I thought I was doing like, hey, this is great. I'm I'm there. I'm in I'm in the place where I want to be. I'm I'm learning to uh, Rolling Stones and these other songs. And then I heard Eddie Van Halen, and it was like 1977, I think, when Van Halen one came out. And there were 90 seconds in that uh, album that changed my life. And the 90 seconds was the song Eruption. Yes, familiar. <laughs> I just listened to that the other day. Like we'd never heard anything like that before in our lives, right? Never, never. It just blew my mind. And I thought I had no idea those kinds of sounds could be formed by an electric guitar. And so I was all in. I bought Van Halen one. And back then it was eight tracks. So I had an eight right. track. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. Uh, and I just was knocked out. And then I heard something that, that also changed my life forever. It was on a radio program where Eddie Van Halen was talking to a DJ in the Delaware Valley. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So the Delaware Valley uh, market um, was predominantly informed by Philadelphia radio stations. And in this one radio station, Eddie Van Halen was on uh, – he was a guest – uh, for a DJ named John DeBella, who I think is still in MMR. He's still, he's still <laughs> on the airwaves. 
And John asked him, Eddie, do you have any advice for budding guitars? Van Halen was playing at the Philadelphia Spectrum, I think, uh, that night. And Eddie was was you know, doing promotional uh, conversations during uh, during that time. But he answered that question in a way that, that was profound. And it really struck me because he said, yes, I do. I have advice. And he said, for all you guitar gods out there in the Delaware Valley, here's, what your, here's your advice from your Uncle Eddie. And I, so he had me. I was yeah. rapt attention. He said, if you're learning how to play guitar, you're probably the kind of kid who's learning songs that you hear on the radio and playing them on your guitar and playing them around a campfire or camping around. And, and you're just singing songs and translating what you hear on the radio onto your six-string guitar. He said, keep doing that. That's great. That's how you get started. But if you want to get better, you have to know you're in a stage. And he said, I call that the campfire stage where you're just playing open chords, strumming and singing around a campfire. And every great guitarist has gone through that first stage. But in order to get better, you have to go through another stage that every great guitarist has gone through. And he said, I call that the Chuck Berry stage. Right. You got to learn to rock out like Chuck. Yeah, well, I was, I was, I was having a vision of myself sitting around the campfire with John Denver all of a sudden, <laughs> right? Isn't I mean that's the vision that I saw right now, yeah. right. and so now I'm I'm with you. I'm tracking yeah. along. Now I'm on to Chuck Berry. Yeah, right. And and you know, I played uh, Country Roads. It was actually my mother's favorite song. My mom was my biggest fan. So whenever I played Country Roads, she just loved it. And so I I must have played Country Roads thousands of times around a campfire. <laughs> but once I heard eruption it's like it's hard to go back to country roads you know i, I wanted to i wanted to learn more and he said you got to go through this chuck berry phase and learn how to rock out like chuck because arguably chuck berry kind of transformed the music of the time into the rock and roll riffs that we still hear today the, the blues scale the pentatonic scale all those great rock and roll riffs and eddie said every great guitarist has gone through the chuck berry phase of learning where they learn all those scales up and down the neck and they they have them committed to their permanent memory and you have to go through that phase before you get to the next phase where you're creating your own form of music you're innovating and you have your own style and your own approach to expressing yourself musically through your instrument so he gave me a conceptual framework to think about my progress as a musician and I, I mean, I, it felt like he was talking right to me. So I thought, okay, I'm in the campfire stage right now. I want to get better. I got to learn to rock out like Chuck. So I did. And I'm still, you know, I love playing Chuck Berry music. I love playing that kind of rock and roll. But I'm also in that happy phase where now I'm creating my own style of performance and, and playing in a more innovative way, finding my own voice. And that's sort of the transcendent. Um, you know, going above and beyond. So that guitar playing framework was absolutely the inspiration for the T3 framework for innovation, where there are three phases, translational learning, transformational learning, and transcendent learning. And they follow along with the campfire phase, the Chuck Berry phase, or innovating like Eddie. I love that. And you know, it's interesting. I was uh, on a webinar last week with a, an author named Jal Mehta out of uh, Harvard University mm-hmm. who was talking about, uh, he's written a book called uh, In Search of Deeper Learning. Mm-hmm. And he visited many schools and classrooms across the nation. And he said one of the things he found where students were doing more of the 21st century deeper learning type activities rooted in the four C's was an adult staff 
who was allowed to experiment and explore in the same way as the kids. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard that before. And, and it resonated with me because I'm thinking about what you just described. You were self-directed and innovative uh, in terms of your own learning. And I think if we create a situation like that for our staff members, like that helps them create that situation for their students. And I'm just, I'm curious about your, your thoughts around that. I concur. Yeah, I guess it's a simple answer, right? Yeah, I concur. Because on one hand, how can you expect teachers to be providing this type of space for students if they feel constrained themselves? Man, this makes great sense. It does. And I I was really fortunate. Uh, Early in my career, I found alternative education. And I was an alternative school teacher where we had a a wonderful um, cadre of uh, experimental, experiential instructors. And we were experimenting with new ways of learning for ourselves so that we could emulate that for our students. Uh, There was a lot of innovation at that time. And that's when I first started using uh, the internet in my classroom in, in the early 1990s. But think of it this way. We teach generally how we learn. So there's, a, there's this really tight correlation between our instructional behaviors and our own learning behaviors. And those learning behaviors aren't formed in no small part by the organization or the context in which we're in. So if we have learning systems that are run in such a way that's very mechanistic and very lockstep and very regimented without valuing experimentation, failing, learning from that failure and failing better, then the learning that takes place in those organizations quite logically will follow that instructional paradigm. On the other hand, when teachers are given free reign to experiment, explore new learning or teaching practices by exploring new learning practices, they're more likely to have an experimental uh, failing forward mindset where they don't see failures as disastrous, but rather new opportunities for deeper learning and the transference of that deeper learning. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking about haven't we kind of been in that in the global pandemic? I mean, I think in systems where teachers have been able to have some freedom to try things and not have the fear of failure themselves, there's some amazing advances that are happening within education in terms of the tools of technology and ways to connect with students authentically, even in a virtual environment. And that's the stuff that I'm really excited about is I think that, you know, for a lot of the general public, you know, schools have been closed, but it's really the buildings that have been closed. I mean, school has continued for many students. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's been a lot of uh, like a tremendous amount of of innovation that's occurred during this period. And I almost want to say that, you know, as we're reopening schools and moving out of distance learning, you know, I think that the days of distance learning are much more behind us than they are in front of us. And I would also say that, you know, let's take the opportunity to say we are now reopening the schools of the future. It's almost like we, you know, have been in such a chaotic environment that I I think that there's going to be some amazing things that come out of this space. And what I love about the T3 framework is that it gives teachers a path to follow. And so maybe uh, 
Sonny, you could take us through, you know, T1, T2, T3, and give our listeners just a little piece of what that might look like between teacher and student in each phase of the framework. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Thanks for the question. The, the T1 phase, that's the first domain in the T3 framework. Uh, T1, I have identified as translational learning and with, with digital tools. And that it describes an experience where students and teachers just translate from translate tasks, teaching and learning tasks from an analog tool set to a digital tool set. The task remains the same, but the key changes. <laughs> you know? yeah, so it. you're playing the same song, but now you're playing it in a digital way, not in an analog way. You're not using an overhead projector or a whiteboard or a, or a blackboard. Uh, you're using a PowerPoint or a Google slideshow or uh, some other means of, of transforming the presentation of learning. That is also aligned with surface learning. Now, that's the starting point. I think it's important that we use technologies to help students engage in surface learning where they need to do some memorization. That's just a part of it. But it's the starting point where students learn and to recall and commit to memory academic vocabulary, basic facts, simple details. All too often, though, we stop there. And so adding technology to enhance the surface learning acquisition of basic facts academic vocabulary and simple details has has a, 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 an effect. It's not a great effect. It's not a small effect, but it does have an effect. But if we stop there, the effect is going to diminish over time. The second phase um, that I call transformational learning, that's when the learning experience is such that the learner is substantively changed. They are transformed and they consolidate that surface level knowledge. It now becomes part of their permanent self. The way they can do that is by producing representations of their knowledge, um, sharing how they think, sharing their thought pathways, using digital tools as a means of capturing the thinking and their concept of what they know and how they came to know it. I call that production, where students are producing examples of their understanding. Uh, that can be consumed by anyone and they're archivable because they could be like, you know, a, a, a voiceover narrative. It could be a, a video. It could be uh, a dramatic representation. It could be some role playing. It could be a Minecraft game. It could be uh, something in Google Slides where they create some representation of their knowledge. The second part of transformation is that we learn in a team. So students learn together. I call that contribution. So the pet theory I have called contributive learning theory, where it goes like this. Learning is a team sport. We learn right. better together. Learning is social, right? right? I mean, our good friend Lev Vygotsky all those years ago, mm -hmm. everybody knows about the zone of proximal development. Right. But I always thought the deeper work that Lev did was around the idea that learning is inherently social. Right. We do yeah. it together. It is a exactly. team sport. So I, I love that. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've certainly embraced that concept. Yeah, quite. Uh, you know, um, we are social beings, and so we are social constructivists. We construct schema or understanding of complex phenomena by talking about it, just like what we're doing now. We're having a conversation. I'm sharing some how I think about things. You're responding back. I get a sense of how you think. So really, we're kind of – we're like a little cognitive band. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. You know, this translational learning and surface learning – 
that can also be enhanced by you know group interaction contributive learning but when we're contributing to the learning of others when we're learning to contribute to the knowledge of others then not only do we uh, consolidate our the surface knowledge that we previously acquired now it's consolidated we also acquire deeper understanding yeah that's the first stage is acquisition of deeper learning by looking at similarities and differences creating representations creating metaphors creating examples um, using inferencing asking what if questions doing thought experiments all of these strategies are part of the transformational experience where we create a budding sort of burgeoning understanding of the concept we're studying. But that's only acquisition. We're acquiring deep knowledge. In order to get to the next phase, that's that's what I call transcendent learning. Trans, transcendent learning is when we Now we're up there with we Eddie Van knowledge. We're we're with our, Eddie Van Halen on this piece, right? Yeah, the, we're with the, Eddie. Yeah, no, we got we got to rock out like it. That should be the goal is yeah. to take our knowledge and apply it in some context that's different from the context in which it was taught. So applying our knowledge to solve some problem that matters to us, I call them wicked problems, that's transcendent. The, the transcendent phase really means to go above and beyond the expectations and the norms for which public education was developed. And I think in this phase, in the 21st century, we have to shift towards a more transcendent view of teaching and learning. So students see their learning not as a, an end to itself, but as a means to an end. A means to making the world a better place by engaging in two important elements. These are the two elements of the transcendent phase, inquiry design and social entrepreneurship. And those two phases allow students to apply their learning, to transfer their deeply their knowledge, their, their deeply acquired knowledge, transfer it into a meaningful real world context so that that knowledge can become consolidated into their permanent self. Yeah, I love that. It's actually brilliant, Sonny. And I'm not saying that just because you're on the podcast with me today. I mean, it's (laughs) this is something to me that has this introduction to this framework and this type of thinking has had a huge impact uh, on the way that I process what it is I'm trying to do um, around teaching and learning. And, Mm -hmm. And I've often said it simply like this. I actually believe it's the next generation of students that's going to solve some of these seemingly unsolvable, intractable, you know, wicked challenges that are before us. And I would actually go so far as to say that this generation of students who has experienced distance learning and virtual learning, I think it it gets them further down the road of having the tool sets and the mindsets to work together to solve some of these problems. I mean, I, I think about the experiences and the self-directed learning and the perseverance required of our students right now, all across the globe, they're getting experiences that certainly the previous generation of students have not had. And I think it contributes to exactly what you're thinking about. And this to me is the essence of the edu revolution is how do we prepare students for their future and not our past? Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I really appreciate that. It's very kind. Thank you very much. You know, I'm, I'm just a simple teacher and I'm just trying to figure stuff out. Uh, But I've been figuring stuff out for four decades of research and have this compounding body of evidence that to me, 
shows a clear pathway for it. In much the same way that Eddie gave me my way to learn right. how to rock and roll, you know, the, my inner rock and roll rebel really relishes in that. But my inner pedagogical rebel relishes in the idea that we can't keep doing the same old things in the same old way and expect different results. We simply can't. So I designed T3 uh, as a next generation pedagogy. Some people think it's a it's a technology integration framework, and it is that, you know, that's fine. But it's, it's really more than that. I, I would suggest people to go dig a little bit deeper and think about this as a as a pedagogy for the third millennium. There you now, go. This is going to sound crazy. I, I don't really share this very much, but but I'm, I'm I'm really comfortable with you, and I trust you, and I, I know you're going to take this in the way I mean it, because I don't mean this to sound arrogant. I mean this to sound like I'm trying to to uh, attain a transcendent. I'm 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 uh, pursuing the transcendent. Got it. Which is impossible. I'll never get there. <laughs> but right. you got to try. That's right. Because if you if you don't try the impossible things, you have a hundred percent chance of not succeeding. Yeah, I mean right. that's I say that you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right. So right. and sometimes it takes vulnerability. Yeah. Like you know you gotta you gotta be willing to put yourself out there. Exactly. So let's okay. do it. Exactly. So here's what it is. So, my, so this is my vulnerable state. I designed T three with this thought in mind. I thought I was thinking of a pedagogy that would last for five hundred years. I designed it as a 500-year pedagogy, and it was a thought experiment that I had for myself. And I thought, okay, what are kids in the 26th century going to need to be successful? And I think what they're going to need to be successful is the ability to identify problems, investigate those problems, and generate ever more robust solutions to those problems that matter. Because you know why? That was the exact same mindset that got us from the Gutenberg printing press 500 years ago to the digital age. People yeah. identifying wicked problems that matter, investigating them using the scientific method, and then using the, the backwards design process, the time-honored backwards design process, starting with the end in mind, working backwards, and having a set of guiding questions, principles, and strategies and tools to help you get there. Yeah, I love that. And it takes it's it's a whole system transformation. It's right? a system thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love it's a that. System idea. Yeah, I the whole love system. That. And you know, my friend Robert Marzano, uh, I'm, I, he's I'm so indebted to him. I mean, so much of my work is is uh, um, was built uh, working with him because we I was the vice president of Marzano Research, uh, their education technology department. He, he was the co-author of my first book. He very kindly wrote the foreword to my book, Disruptive Classroom Technology, and he said that at that third phase of my framework, the T3 phrase, it starts with a student's passion. What are they passionate about? And it ends with shifting the focus from an individual, from the myopic and the idiosyncratic to the collective and the inclusive. And they said at that point, the whole system will change. And I agree though. I thought that was a profound insight about this work. When, when the whole system thinks about helping kids apply their knowledge to identify a wicked problem that matters to them. And I should take a moment and define wicked problem because it, I mean, it sounds like a surfing term or if you're <laughs> people from Boston might think, Oh, wicked. Uh, What's the, that mean? The, the socks were wicked this year. Yeah. Um, it's actually in the research literature, right? That's where I yeah. first heard of it. Yeah. Rattel and Weber came up with a categorization, a schema to categorize uh, problems uh, of increasing complexity. So there were simple problems, um, compound problems, complex problems, and the problems that were the hardest of all, they, they determined as wicked. And here's the characteristic of a wicked problem. A wicked problem is important, it's intractable, 
It's complicated, it's multifaceted, and it is as yet unsolved. The good news is there's no shortage of wicked problems that's that kids right. care about, right? Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's the, the thing, news. and that that's what personally excites me is mm. our students have a sense of the world around them and the injustices that are mm-hmm. inherent in our world yes. and yes, the and the problems that need to be solved. And it and in some mm-hmm. cases it almost feels like we're holding them back because they, we've got this prescriptive yeah. you know experience planned out for the kids mm-hmm. where if you deviate too far off the script, yeah. um you know, then there's fear amongst the teachers that, you know, you Agreed. can get in trouble with, you know, for that and all that kind of stuff. So I, yeah, I'm so with you on this. And I and I love the idea of the wicked problems. Mm. And um, yeah. so I know that Marzano was a mm. great colleague and friend. And um, he's a mentor, mentor you know, I, to yeah, you. He's, he's definitely my mentor. Right. I I, he's, not, he's not my peer. I wish I, I wish I would be at his level. I'm not. He's, <laughs> but I carry his bags. I'm, I'm very content right. to carry his bags. Rob, can I, Bob, can I pick up your dry cleaning for you? On the way? <laughs> I do it. I do it. <laughs> and he'll crack up. He's going to listen to this. He's going to crack up. But there's, he's got a great sense of humor too. You, your research, uh, Sonny, indicates that, you know, for the T3 framework, uh, if it's done well, yeah. an effect size of 1.6, which is actually a quadrupling of student achievement. And this caught the attention yeah. of another person named John Hattie. And yeah. you've written that John Hattie was very, I think, uh, encouraged, excited about your results. Talk to us about your connections with John Hattie. Yeah, that was that was just you know kind of another mind blowing thing. You know, I've been very, very, very lucky in my life to to have the opportunity to work with some you know, luminaries in education. You know, my former teachers and professors, uh, Dr. Marzano, and then uh, uh, Professor Hattie. Uh, John um, read my manuscript before it was published, uh, the disruptive classroom technologies, and unbeknownst to me, he um, wrote a glowing review. Um, and in fact, I put the review in the, the first page of the book. It's like, oh my God, this, this is the greatest thing ever. He said that, um, you know, T3 takes his visible learning model, a quantum, a major leap forward. I don't think he said quantum. He said a major step forward, uh, because when students use, uh, uh, contributive uh, technology tools like the like the G Suite, the Google Suite of tools, or the Microsoft Office tools, or a whole range of uh, collective production tools that provides new affordances where students can learn collectively in ways that you simply cannot learn without the technology. So the research that I that I did was compounding research over the, the you know, a course of four decades. So it's a long time. It takes a long time to get something right. But the effect sizes that we saw were 1.6 and even greater. We saw some effect sizes that were above 2.0, which is just extraordinary. John saw that. He, he peer-reviewed my work and was very instrumental not only in um, – uh, re- reviewing and, and uh, uh, positively uh, um, sharing disruptive classroom technology, but he 
shared the work with um, the folks at the Oxford University um, Research Encyclopedia for Education. And through John's efforts, uh, my my study, uh, my research was peer reviewed. You know, they checked all my math, they checked all the <laughs> all the work, because that's what happens. Peer reviews is, a, is an exhaustive process where, you know, every single thing, every single stone is, is you know, turned over to say, is this reliable? Did you make any bias? Is there mistakes? You know, and I appreciate that because I want to keep continuing get to make it better. Um, but it was uh, approved and was published recently in the, uh, the Oxford University Research Encyclopedia for Education. So that's a pretty high honor for a simple teacher. Um, from like you know uh, to have your stuff uh, reviewed by uh, people like Hattie Michael Fullen reviewed it Michael Fullen thought it was great he called the T3 framework a brilliant um, um, uh, new innovation and the the identification of the T3 the wicked problems he said in and of itself that's an innovation uh, so these methods are now I think they 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 exist in a category of high reliability which yeah. is the best you can get. I mean, that's really the brass ring when it comes to research. If you can say that these methods are highly reliable, which is, which is a way of saying they're more likely to work to improve student learning than not. That's as good as it gets. There's no such thing as proven strategies because there, there's nothing is proven. It's, it's just, is there high probability? And that means they're high probability strategies. They're not high yield strategies, they're high probability strategies. But if the strategies are used in the manner in which is intended with fidelity to these practices, one should expect an acceleration in learning. Yeah, I love that. Well, I got to tell you, Sonny, I think you are the gold standard. And <laughs> I am just so excited for you and the accomplishments. And, and like you said, you know, this is a journey. Yeah, it's a journey. It's a it's a 40-year journey in some cases. Yeah. And you know, it's unfortunate in some ways because I think when I was younger and in education, I had all this energy, but I wasn't necessarily expending it in the right areas. And you know, as I'm a little more seasoned today, I probably have less energy, but I'm probably a little bit more intentional about where I spend my time and the things that I'm doing. You know, I guess I put that out there just to say to, you know, teachers and district and site administrators that, you know, you there is a refinement, I think, and there is a sense of wisdom that comes with yeah. being in the game a while. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that because we are veterans to this that we aren't open to change and trying new things and hence kind of the inspiration for the edgy revolution and right. having guests on that can really talk with, you know, a lot of experience under their belt around ways that we're thinking about not only getting students to move through the 21st century, but preparing for the 22nd century. Right. And, and beyond. Yeah. And beyond. And beyond. <laughs> I love the 500 year framework, you know, and it's kind of like, I, I heard, I was talking to another one of our, our partners, John Crippo, and, mm -hmm. you know, he said, a lot of times, you know, we think about our student-teacher relationship as a one-year relationship. What if we move that into saying, look, kid, we're in a 20-year relationship with yeah. each other? It just changes the whole perspective, right? Now you're, now you're working on a different scale. Yeah. And um, yeah. I want to tell you, Sonny, I am just, I'm so grateful to know you. And uh, I want to say 
thank you for investing some time to to come on the Edge Revolution podcast. It's been wonderful having you, and I hope you will come back again and um, share some more things. I know you've got uh, something that's kind of a new launch for you is the uh, Cyber Learning Academy that you're doing, Cyber Learning Lab, I should say. Cyber Learning. And I'm going to link some of this in the show notes so that people have access, and we'll also put some stuff on the website. But uh, let's conclude here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Cyber Learning Lab. Thank you. Uh, very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah, we've. Um, I have a partnership with the Magani Education, my, my company. I partner with uh, the Ventura County Office of Education and um, at the start of the pandemic because we just had a feeling that teachers were thrown into – teachers and leaders were thrown into remote learning um, overnight, and it was so disruptive. I said it's kind of like asking teachers who don't know how to swim to be lifeguards. Love that. And it's analogy. like asking yeah. leaders who don't know how to swim to be lifeguard instructors. So, you know, if you're not if you're not familiar with distance learning, it's going to be very disruptive. So th- there's going to be a, a a pandemic slide effect that will come come clear in the next you know two or three years. We'll have a better understanding of you know what that slide is, was. What's the impact of that slide? But I think we, we're on uh, a um, a negative trajectory, and we need to change it. So we developed um, a an experiential learning lab, much like John Dewey's uh, laboratory school, where teachers were exploring new innovative pedagogies um, to uh, support their students. So I work with Marlena Heburn. She's the um, she and John wrote the Edge Protocol. She's the lead author for the Edge Protocols Field Guide and the Edge Protocols Field Guide. So she and John have written those books, and so I partnered with Marlena to develop what we're calling the T3 Edge Protocol Cyber Leadership Lab uh, to help leaders lead the educational recovery by being conversant in the strategies and the research-based tools and the edge edge protocols for leaders. And we're really excited because we launched two new uh, T3 Edge Protocols. Uh, One of them is called the Wicked Problem Generator, which helps take folks step-by-step through the process of the inquiry design and social entrepreneurship. And for leaders, we had great, great feedback on something called the Magania effect size generator, where uh, leaders and teachers can actually generate an effect size in the classroom to determine the impact of these strategies. Uh, And the whole goal is what we're calling Project Moonshot. Project Moonshot is a campaign to double learning productivity in K-20 classrooms using the research-based methods and meta-analytical procedures to evaluate impact. Isn't that cool? I love that. And being a fan of Google, the whole concept of the moonshot and 10x thinking, Mm -hmm. it it sounds to me like you've got that wrapped right into this program. And I am super excited. Just in full transparency, I'm going to be able to participate in that uh, cyber learning leadership lab. And I am so looking forward to that. So I appreciate that opportunity. Well, Sonny, I think that'll about do it for this episode. Uh, again, I'll say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link uh, the information that you provided you. in the show notes for the episode. And we'll also put some links on the website. So if you're interested and you'd love to have more information around what uh, Dr. Sonny Magania is doing, visit the Edu Revolution Podcast website at www.edurevolutionpodcast.com. And Sonny, I want to say thank you so much again for spending some time with me today. Just love chatting with you and much continued success in the future for you. 
Oh, thanks so much. I'm really grateful for uh, our friendship and our, our uh, partnership and looking forward to having you uh, participate in the March uh, cohort. So thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick 2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the edurevolutionpodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.